So this is going to probably come off as critical of USAW. Not my intent. It's just probably going to come off that way. I personally believe that the progression of block or hang down to the floor is misguided. I do think that there's an element of there's, we need to progress with a large group of people with the concept of regression to the mean that if I was going to choose an exercise amongst a hundred people, where will majority of them be successful? Probably your better bet is from a hang or from a block position. Because you basically just take away things, right? And we go into our centration module and we can think about Charlie talking about four by four or Greg Rose's or someone from the functional movement systems four by four of taking joints away. Take things away and then see what happens. And essentially, you're just taking this reductionist-based approach until you get to something that you think the majority of people will be successful with. Now, is that the best for training weightlifters? I say no, personally. I just don't think it's as uh, valuable, relatively speaking. Now, training athletes doing weightlifting, maybe that's a different story. But I'll go on the other end of the spectrum, and I'll play devil's advocate against myself of this idea that top-down is drastically superior to bottom-up. Let's say that you take this approach of like Franz Bosch and doing very complex environments, implicit learning environments where the athletes are reacting based off of various stimuluses or constraints you put on the environment. Running full speed with a dowel overhead or using, using aqua bag or a sandbag and doing ballistic hinge patterns or adding a elevated surface while getting triple extension into a single leg split stance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like the idea is here's our like running, here's a pattern, running, skipping, jumping, hopping, bounding, uh, shuffling, karaoke, uh, walking. And then we just start to add in a bunch of layers to it or a bunch of things that make it a more reactive environment. Now we could say the same thing for weightlifting, right? You could say, all right, well, if I want to create more implicit learning or this organic natural response to the environment, they have a hardwired motor pattern that's just more robust and more capable, then I can start to think about it from the context of, well, maybe I start to do it blindfolded or maybe I start to do it one leg or maybe I start to do it from a reverse or whatever other things I can do to facilitate more robust, more dynamic patterns. That's wrong, for, especially for something like weightlifting. It's a pretty simple biomotor thing it's a very closed loop. It's bars going to get overhead and there's two paths. And the more you can refine that motor pattern, the better off you're going to be. 
when we talked about FRC's Bernstein Law, there's no two movements are the same. Truth is, is we're trying to make those two movements the same, as similar as possible with weightlifting, or snatch a clean and jerk. So top down comes from a biomotor perspective, not from a biomechanical perspective. And that's important to know, because that's going to lead into the next conversation of when, why, what, and how do we do top down or bottom up? And we have two classic models, or I guess two classic uh, case studies to really break this down. And you can see in this module, we have a Bulgarian weightlifting documentary. And I think as a whole, we should do a really good job as strength coaches of understanding our, our lineage and our history and what we are in terms of a profession and how we got here. Because it's so important. But if you go back to, I guess, the 60s and 70s in, in the 20th century when we started to progress in, in terms of being a profession and some coaches out there were taking some frameworks from track and field and weightlifting and starting to incorporate that into performance. And they were like, oh, okay, well, who are the best in the world at this? And it goes into, okay, well, let's look at track, field, track and field coaches and maybe even like swim coaches that have a definitive point B and they start to look at it from, okay, well, we got to go, we got to build a base and, before we can start to do things fast or throw things far, right? So you see track and field programs in the fall, like encouraging cross country or just doing a lot of volume or doing a lot of you know, big gross GPP work. You see that still to this day in a lot of different sports. On the other end, you can go into this other extreme dynamic of weightlifting where more of the Russian model is like, okay, we'll start everyone with front squat and let's go to deadlift and let's look at hand cleans and block high, high mid-thigh block cleans and let's start to look at... Uh, maybe below knee cleans, or maybe we start to look at below knee block position and then low block and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until we get to the floor and then, okay, bars on the ground, get that over your head with one fluid movement or get that over your head with catching it on your shoulders and then progressing it overhead. And then, you know what? Like, they had tremendous success. And... They produce a lot of incredible numbers and a lot of incredible lifting. And for the folks that don't know, America and Russia were pretty much neck and neck for best weightlifters in the world. Pretty great story from York, Pennsylvania, Muscletown, USA, where they were the, the really the big counterpart to... Russian systems, whereas American earnestness and, you know, guys from Pennsylvania and the surrounding areas just working full-time jobs and snatching, cleaning, jerking on their off time, right? Like, however you want to romanticize it. And it was a battle royale. And then around the 70s, some Eastern Bloc countries started to get really resourceful 
And that's when they created the Bulgarian system. And the weightlifting coach, Abajav, who is infamous for the true, those who stay will be champions, takes on this approach of just every day max, every session max. And as we start to accrue more tonnage, will chip away at Russian and Americans. They far surpass America, and then they started to challenge Russia for supremacy in weightlifting. And this is a battle. Now we have two battling ideologies of, okay, get them in there and just have max every single time. And Abhijab did that to his, the day he died. He actually finished his career in San Jose area where he had a weightlifting club called Podium Gold. It was the same thing. You just go in and here's what we're doing. Snatch, clean, and jerk, or front squat. And you're going to max out on it. And then you're going to go home. Where Bulgarian weightlifting was full-time job and Eastern Black countries were selected to do jobs and that was their job. So he had them do that eight times a day, which is infamous in, in uh, Zatiorski's and Kramer's Science and Practice where it goes through the the eight times a day workout schedule. It's about 45 minutes on, hour 15 off, rinse, wash, and repeat seven more times. And each session is a 45 minute max on some sort of exercise, right? So seven, 7 a.m., max out on snatch. 9 a.m., max out on clean and jerk. 11 a.m., max out on front squat. 1, 1 p.m., max out on on snatch pulls. 3 p.m., max out on, on hang clean. 5 p.m., come back and max out on back squat. And you can just kind of get the, the style here. And what Abhijab's whole premise was, there's only one way we're going to close the gap here is accrue more tonnage. And tonnage is a big metric that you basically can calculate and intensity or the absolute load combined with volume and density and the more volume density at higher intensities the more your tonnage goes up so he closed the gap between russia and bulgaria by just simply accruing more tonnage by having a strategy that gets more work in the same period of time as russia did now here goes into the next big question how many of the athletes that Bulgaria had were potentially injured and could have been world champions if they took a more pragmatic bottom-up approach? Versus, here's the other end of it, Russia, with a much more robust pool of people they can work with, where would they have been if they were more aggressive and took it on this top-down approach. And I think that's an interesting debate because the truth is you can take on a top-down model of with really high population and really rich talent pools. And if you think about America and what we do, let's just take a sport like basketball, isn't that just play and then get them into more 
controlled environment. Like the best players in the world, you ask them how they became some of the best players in the world. They just started playing. And then they get inserted into high school or AU, and then they get inserted into college or, or developmental leagues, and they get inserted to a professional basketball association. And then they start to work on, on things, uh, refine their game. You know, like what's their, their pull-up jumper, what's their dribbling skills, what's this small little, like, seemingly rare, very rare shot they practice over and over and over again. Like the Dirk Nowitzki one-leg fadeaway. And then all of a sudden becomes a viable option and scoring option. So much so he won a championship with that shot. But most of these athletes who are playing in the NBA or NFL or even Major League Baseball just play. And then when as they start to progress, they start to refine. So not the same thing as Bulgaria did. Just play and play and play until you get to a point where you actually think you could do this at a higher level. And then we start to try to add in nuance to make sure that we're accentuating weaknesses and making sure you're more well-rounded. Versus this other idea of just trying to engineer something from the bottom up. And, you know, I have, you know, the, I have a son. I'm like, oh, wow, I really want him to be a great golfer. So we're going to go to the range and we're going to work on just driving or short game or putting. Or I'm going to start to work on rotational power. Or I'm going to start to work on flexibility. And I'm going to start to do all these comp- complementary things to make him prepared to do that. I do that for 20 years and he wins Augusta, right? The whole Tiger Woods versus, versus, I don't know who would be a golf savant, but someone who just played, right? Um, Are we engineering athletes or are we developing athletes or creating or managing athletes? And I, I don't know if there's a great answer to this. And I talked about in principles that, you know, typically we see athletes that have a really robust level of a motor skill. They're just really super athletic and they pick things up relatively quickly. Trust me, you work in Division One athletics and with pro athletes. They take for granted how easy things come to them. And they don't have as, they don't have as much of a a value system tied into doing something because it was so easy to get, right? If I was going to give you a million dollars with nothing to show for it, with no, no effort whatsoever, would you be frivolous with that? Would you just spend it quickly and just like, well, shoot, I'm going to get a bunch of stuff I don't need because I didn't earn this. Versus if you wash dirty cars in, in a hot blazing sun, and you got 50 bucks on that day, would you be a lot more strategic in how you spend that? You know how that answer goes, right? You know what that is. And with these athletes that have a robust amounts of motor patterns and development and just see and do and be very capable quickly, I think you need to take this approach of, all right, well, we need to look at this from, I'm developing a bottom-up structure in a different means, right? I'm developing through progressive overload, their ability to sustain these intensities and loads to best prepare them to handle that motor pattern, right? So a really good example of this would be working with NBA coaches and 
you know, them struggling with this idea of like, hey, we're come from college, and our best way to help those athletes is to do free weight compound movement patterns with the group to develop their athleticism and coordination, et cetera, et cetera. Versus these other athletes are playing 40 minutes a night and they're incredibly athletic and they can do the most amazing things on this green earth. And probably the best thing for that athlete is playing 40 minutes, 82 games, unbelievably athletic and skilled as already is to go, I need to create more cross-sectional muscle area in the quad for them to ha- avoid getting tendinopathies. I need to create more cross-sectional muscle area in the hamstring to prevent unnecessary soft tissue injuries. And honestly, like that's not, that's not easy for strength coaches coming from the college environment to the NBA environment to go, yeah, yeah, give me a bunch of machines. I'm just going to line them up and I'm just going to create tens- tension in this area for 15 minutes to encourage this athlete to train and develop areas because their skill and motor skill is so good. And I, that's a hard thing to process. And that's where your most value is going to be is make that decision in best interest of the athlete. Versus if I got a high school kid that can't even bodyweight squat or do a somersault or a skip or any kind of like basic locomotive skill. Do I need to rush them back squatting and doing cleans? Again, chances are probably not. You got to really prioritize what that person needs that's in front of you, not what you like to do or what you're more accustomed to doing or what you prefer doing. And again, it goes back into this idea of would Russia have been better off by being more aggressive or would Bulgaria have been better off by being more pragmatic? And I don't think the answer is there. And I think China has really kind of crossed the threshold of both, right? They have a huge population density and they've taken on this very, very innovative like style of, yeah, we're going to bottom up this and top down this all at the same time. And we've completely thrown out the baby with the bathwater with weightlifting since testing has been more rigorous. So instead of pulling the bar upwards, we're going to just drop below it. So can I get it to my waist is really the determining factor of whether you're going to be a good weightlifter now. But Juringa attributes it to the Fosberg flop of... Before, the best high jumpers in the world used to scissor kick, and that was predicated off how tall you were and how high you could jump. Now, you have to essentially catapult yourself over a bar, and that comes down to, one, how coordinated you are, two, how much you practice that technique, and then three, really, again, the underlying biomotor ability of how high you can jump and what your levers are, determines your success, right? It's like pole vaulting. How good is your equipment? How good are you timing the, I guess, the snap of the, the pole? How good are you are catapulting yourself over the bot, over that, that beam? I mean, like we look at the best gymnasts in the world, are they just more efficient through repetition? Are they extremely athletic like Simone Biles? Like I would argue she's extremely probably technical and genetically gifted 
you know, I, I mean, that's weightlifting now. Like weightlifting now is just like gymnast of like the best athletes and combined with the best technique is what's going to win. Probably always should have been that, but before it was so anabolically steroid driven. And so just wild west and raw of like just crush them with tonnage or just pound them in the submission. We got them for 15 years. So eventually they're going to be able to put up gold medal numbers. And if you look back through the, the, the progression of history, you know, it was like a, it was a, a weightlifting challenge between America and Russia of the first 500 pound clean and jerk and the first five person to get 500 pounds overhead. And technically it's Bob Bignarski from America who did that for York Barbell in competition if you go through the, the journals, Russian weightlifters were specifically, specifically uh, Vizeli, uh, they call him Big Russian. I don't even try to get me to pronounce his last name. Uh, apparently he could do that in his sleep. He just wasn't gonna get money for it unless he set a world record, a Russian record, or won a gold medal. So for Russia, they would reward medals, world records, so he wasn't going to do that unless he was going to get a world record or a medal. And going into competition, if he every single time set a new world record or medaled, he'd get more money. So if I can clean and jerk 500 pounds, but yet the world record's 460, or let's say that I can clean and jerk 500 pounds, but I only need 450 to medal, they're going to do the 450. So it's a little bit of a skewed deck, one end in terms of Soviet communist bloc versus democratic capitalist-based society. Uh, what's going to be the rewarded aspect? Bignarski was just doing it for the pure sense of, I want to be the first in the world to do it, where Vizali was essentially doing it for money, which is essentially how he survived. And then you go into get the guys like Taranenko, who was like, I believe the first person to snatch. He had the all time record until recently, but like two, I think it was like 214 snatch. Like, and then now it's just blown out. Like these guys are incredible, but technique has improved so much. And that's kind of my point here. You know, we have so much more information and education and where China's really excelled is kind of one, they have incredible population density, and they're not afraid to be aggressive. And two, they have invest a lot of money into in sport, and they now have a really big interest in weightlifting. So you look at the yeah, the weightlifters, the registered weightlifters in China versus America. It's it's, it's ridiculously small number in America, comparatively speaking, to China. I'm just going to exaggerate here, probably like ten to one. And then you progress them starting really young and you start to get a really good inroad to them being really de really developed over a longer period of time. And I think the thing that I'm trying to get across here with this practical, it's, it's not a simple answer. You know, I could have, I want to learn violin. I can listen to the best violinists in the world and go, okay, let me try to replicate that. 
I'm 42. I don't know if I'm going to do well with that teaching progression. Because one, I have no foundation in music. I don't have a good ear and I don't have a good sense for it. But two, I'm probably hardwired to go, no, nah, that's not the way you learn, right? You, you got to... You got to learn the notes. You got to learn the instrument. You got to be instructed in small, digestible chunks to develop into that playing of a beautiful violin. And I think, I, in some way, shape, or form, I probably take that with everything I do. And it probably goes full circle of looking back at that weightlifting example and saying, well, you just said you disagree with that model. I disagree with it from. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And I'm saying that from... And this is something, too, that I've been really adamant on in my career. You know, the idea, and, and this is the dangers of, of extrapolating out. But when I, I remember when Malcolm Gladwell came out with Outliers and coined the term 10,000-hour rule, and this is like mid-2000s, it became a very like, I guess a easy thing to pull and say, oh, well that is attributable to everything. Specifically weightlifting, snatch and clean and jerk. And I remember, you know, say a buddy Morris was like, well, you shouldn't do weightlifting because you need 10,000 10, snatches or 10,000 cleans to be proficient at it. Which is not, True. It's not even close to true. Like that's not that's not good. That honestly, I think that's reckless and dangerous. I think it's just stupid to say that, to be completely frank. Because anyone who's ever taught weightlifting will tell you directly that that's just not the case. That can be relatively competent in a very short period of time. Give me a small enough group with one like one to three people or give me a large group with really good athletes. I will be very good at weightlifting with whoever I'm coaching extremely quickly. In fact, we can say CrossFit has really done a great job of making people debunking that myth. Right. And I don't like to give CrossFit any any validation here, but they're taking a bunch of people who couldn't do it in the first place and doing it. Right, the, I'm stereotyping here, but chances are the people that really gravitate to CrossFit never really had that competitive outlet that most high-level athletes do. And chances are they probably weren't inherently as good at stuff as really high-level athletes do. Hence why they tolerate such high training stress and, and what they, they endure just to say they're doing this mode of exercise. But as a whole, there's a lot of people snatching and cleaning and jerking now, I don't know if it's done safely. I don't know if it's done with the right audience. And I also don't know if it's used properly because, quite, quite frankly, most people are doing CrossFit for body composition, and that's a pretty crappy tool for that. But back to Buddy Morris's, you need 10,000 lifts. Like, it's, a, it's just a, extrapolated out from Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule, which I think also, too, from if you ever read Range or anything by Epstein, it's not... It's not true. It's just simply not true for everything. You know, the more complex the, the thing, yeah, you'll need more practice and repetition, but it's a gross exaggeration, and it's not fair to say that's, that's something that is actually real.
But on the other end, locking yourself in on weightlifting, because that's what I do, is a mistake too, right? Like I don't believe you need 10,000 lifts. I don't even think you need 1,000. Give me a couple and a couple days, I can get them good. But what, what would be that point of that? I don't have to do that, especially if it doesn't really serve the athletes that I'm working, right? So if it doesn't really, it's not relevant, why do you worry about it? Who cares? I don't do that with Gen Pop because it doesn't matter. It's not what they want. They want to look better. They don't want to feel like crap while doing it. I don't do it with all my high school athletes. I've done it with swimming. I've done it with, I've done it with volleyball. I've done it with football. I've done it with lacrosse. And maybe I don't do the full variations with throwing athletes. You know, their hands and their wrists and their elbows are critical. You know, but on the other end is maybe I do it with a with a track and field athlete that I work with. And I think that's the part too. It's like as I start to look at weightlifting and I start to look at where it's inserted into this same thing where I look at track and field. Like, does it really matter if someone could do an A skip? No. But it's important to know if they have that skipping pattern. Can they? And here's the definition of a skip. It's a bound, or it's a hop to a bound. So right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left. That's a skip. Not a lot of people know that definition. Do you have the prerequisite motor ability to coordinate yourself? And not even just doing it in the sagittal plane, but doing it in the transverse, right? Can you do a... A S, a S skip for 30 yards. Can you do it backwards? Can you do a lateral or a frontal plane skip? So a shuffle in all three planes. Which is basically essentially not crossing over, crossing a midline in any way. So it's pushing, it's, it's a bounding like pattern. Just only difference between that and around is the legs never cross over. So essentially, if I want to shuffle forward, I keep my left foot back, right foot forward, and I push off the left to go right. I can do that in an S pattern. I can do that even in a lateral pattern, really, if you want. If you think about it, it's basically a split stance lateral shuffle. But point being is, can they at least do that? It's pretty interesting to know, and it's pretty important to know once you start to get athletes developed. Do I need to do it till I'm blue in the face? Do I need to do it every single day, like EDD drills? I don't think so. But then again, too, maybe we do apply this like very simple, redundant type thing that is a chop wood carry water, right? You know, Jiro dreams of sushi. Like you're basically focusing on the rice all day. Be the best in the world at that. Okay. You know, every, and we always used to joke about weightlifting or stature clean and jerk is like. You know, the barbell warm-up is the most important thing you do. And, and the warm-up sets are the most important thing you do. World champions warm up with greens, as Tommy Moffat used to tell us. So there's, there's a lot of emphasis on that. And, uh, you know, I think, about the, I think about what this all really means, and I think about what the whole goal of progression is. I think we should just need to take a second, stop, and go, what is the point, and what do I need to do to help that athlete? 
And from there, I just try to pick the best path to get them there. And it might include weightlifting. It might improve. It might include speed or agility drills. It might improve just basic machines and strengthening. All being, it's it's leading to this end goal of making an athlete more robust and capable when they play a sport. Bottom line. All right, guys, make sure you check out next week. We got Joe Conley in, who's going to talk about his idea and progression and our case study. All right, we'll see you guys next time.